0: pincher by name pincher by nature that's what boris johnson is alleged to have said about chris pincher before he made him deputy chief whip there have been lots of denials flying around this weekend as to what the prime minister did and didn't know they are all unraveling i'm joined by ash sarkar to talk about another self-inflicted crisis that's facing boris johnson's conservative party how are you doing ash
1: I'm very well, but I'm a bit perturbed by how many representatives if, of our governing party turn out to be sex pests. It's a bit disconcerting.
0: It's, I mean, disconcerting is one way of putting it. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty gross. And um, we are going to be discussing that tonight. We should say, of course, with Chris Pincher, this is all alleged. Um, I don't think he's explicitly admitted to anything or been you know, found guilty in a, in a court of law, but The number of allegations flying around in Westminster are definitely enough to cause alarm. Also on tonight's show, we are talking about the latest COVID numbers. Um, I'm sure you'll know they're on the up. A new moral panic, this time about babies or the lack of them, and a bizarre Republican debate. You want to stay tuned for this. It's It lit up my weekend, I have to say, although it did also make me a little bit worried about the end of the world. But, you know, a double-edged sword there. Boris Johnson is once again in hot water. That's because it has been revealed he knew of sexual misconduct allegations against Chris Pincher before making him Deputy Chief Whip back in February. After a weekend of increasingly unconvincing denials, Johnson's spokesperson today said, At the time of the appointment, the Prime Minister was not aware of any specific allegations being looked at. The Prime Minister was aware of media reports that others had seen over the years and some allegations that were either resolved or did not proceed to a formal complaint. He was aware that there had been reports and speculation over the years with regards to this individual, but there were no specific allegations. There was no formal complaint at the time. Very confusing, really, saying that there were specific allegations, but none of them quite reached the point of a formal complaint. That's what I'm interpreting that to mean. Of course, this latest crisis to hit Boris Johnson erupted at the end of last week after Pincher was accused of drunkenly groping two men in a club. A further 13 allegations of sexual misconduct taking place over several years have emerged since then. And as I've already intimated, denials of Johnson's prior knowledge had been unconvincing and often excruciatingly so. This was Cabinet Member Therese Coffey speaking to Sophie Ridge on Sunday.
2: I just want to talk about what the Prime Minister knew and when, Um, because Boris Johnson, of course, made Crispin to the Deputy Whip in February. When he was given that job, was the Prime Minister aware of any allegations about his behaviour?
3: Well, I don't know about any individual conversations. Um, um, It's uh, been suggested that uh, there was uh, a discussion, a referral to... Pet, uh, which is happens with all ministerial appointments, actually, that, uh, there's an element of a bit of vetting that goes on. Uh, but ultimately the decision is that of the Prime Minister. Uh, I'm clear that, uh, I'd say I'm not part of those individual conversations. Um, it, Chris had served in government before and, uh, was, uh, had, had been a minister elsewhere. So I'm not aware that there was anything that was brought to the attention of the Prime Minister, uh, to make that change. <clears throat> so, sorry. I, I'm still not really clear. Um, you say you
2: weren't aware of any reports. Uh, you say that everyone is passed on for betting if they, you know, become, uh, are given a position. Was the Prime Minister aware of allegations around
3: Chris Pinch's behaviour when he was made Deputy Chief Whip in February? Well, I've just said to you, I'm not involved in any of those uh, direct conversations.
2: Well, why don't, uh, but why don't you ask? I just, I don't, you know, I, I get, you know, perhaps it's easier just to be able to come on uh, these programs and say, look, I don't know. So who knows? But, but, but surely you must I, ask to try and find out, you know, that's the first thing that most people would do. When did the prime minister know? So that when I am asked this question, I can give the answer.
3: Well, as I've just outlined to you, what, um, has been suggested in terms of, uh, things were referred, uh, but nevertheless, uh, when somebody phoned the prime minister, uh, particularly on Friday, I think it was, um, he agreed with the chief whip that the uh, whip should uh, the whip should be suspended. Sorry, I don't. So, I, don't
2: I, I, I genuinely don't understand that sentence. That um, it was suggested and things were referred. I, I don't. What does that mean?
3: Well, I think it's been well laid out, um, Sophie. That uh, uh, when the appointment for becoming deputy chief whip again, um, moving from a different ministerial post. Uh, it was uh, vet, went through vetting process like normal, um, but as I say, I'm not directly involved in those discussions. Um, I'm not going to try and do so, and I'm not part of that more general uh, kind of rumour speculation mill within Westminster. Uh, but nevertheless, sorry, um, I'm just going to come in again. I'm just going to come in again. Apologies. Um, you don't you need to apologise. Well I'm like
2: just going to give you the same answer, Sophie. But I don't. I don't understand the answer. Uh, I uh, forgive me. You say it was well laid out. That he went through a vetting process like normal, but the question is, where was the prime minister aware of allegations about his
3: behaviour? I'm, I'm not aware that he was made aware of like specific claims about uh, um, any particular incidents or anything like that. No, I'm not. I don't believe he was aware. That's what I've been told today. Um, but uh, that's uh, uh, you were asking more about more general rumours, and I'd, I've no idea what conversations have been had. I'm just I am aware that he, the prime minister, was not aware of specific claims that have been made.
0: I'm not aware that he was made aware of any specific claims about specific incidents. That's what I've been told anyway. She wasn't speaking with much confidence and it took us three minutes just to get to that. As I've said, that pain was for nothing. Johnson has now admitted he did in fact know of specific incidents, a fact which was already obvious to anyone who read the Sunday Times. That was before Therese Coffey had to do that disastrous interview. So the Sunday Times reported this. By February this year, Pincher had become an integral member of Johnson's inner circle and was being widely tipped to replace Mark Spencer as the government's chief whip. One minister told Spencer five days before the reshuffle that he would resign if Pincher were promoted back into the whip's office. When the reshuffle began on February 8th, a rumor that he was about to be handed the top job reached the Tory MP who in 2018 had been invited up to Pincher's parliamentary office and rebuffed his advances. Appalled, the MP fired off messages to Heaton Harris and an official in number 10. In his exchange with Heaton Harris, the MP is said to have recounted the alleged encounter in 2018 and claimed to have been aware of colleagues who had been subjected to similar behavior. While confirming the exchange of text messages, a government source said the MP did not formally complain. The reshuffle was delayed for four hours as a senior Downing Street aide referred the matter to the government's propriety and ethics team. A short review was carried out with officials reporting that there was nothing in Pincher's formal record that could prevent the appointment. In any event, political appointments are a matter for the prime minister alone. So someone who felt they were a victim of sexual misconduct on the part of Pincher informed number 10 at the time of the February reshuffle. Yet coffee was sent out to deny he was aware of any specific allegations. Very, very implausible. For his part, Dominic Cummings has been characteristically critical of the Prime Minister. He tweeted over the weekend this. If trolleys, that's what he calls Boris Johnson, didn't know about Pincher as he's claiming, why did he repeatedly refer to him laughingly in number 10 as Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, long before appointing him? Those allegations from Dominic Cummings were this morning put to Minister for Families and Children, Will Quince.
4: We know that the Prime Minister's former aide, Dominic Cummings, um, said these words, um, that Chris Pincher was referred to by Boris Johnson as Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, before appointing him as Deputy Chief Whip. Um, how much did he know and at what point?
5: So look, I, I personally don't give much credibility to, to what Dominic Cummings says, and nor am I going to comment on speculation or gossip on rumours to what may or may not have been said. But what I will say is this, that I anticipated this question. I spoke to Number 10 both yesterday and this morning, and I asked firmly and clearly for an explanation as to what had happened. And I have been given a categorical assurance that the Prime Minister was not aware of any specific allegation uh, or complaint made against the former Deputy Chief Whip Chris Pincher.
4: Let's talk, shall we, about that word specific. Was the Prime Minister aware of more general allegations?
5: Well, I think look, and I, the answer to that is I, I don't know, and I haven't asked those questions. I, I think in order to for a due process to follow and disciplinary action to be taken, an investigation you do have to have a a, com- a complaint. And you know Westminster has, and I'm afraid always will be, and it's something I try to avoid a wash with uh, rumor and uh, gossip. Now, I'm not suggesting in this case that 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 was uh, the case, but what we do need is to create an environment where people feel able to come forward and make complaints, whether they witness behaviour or whether they are the victims of inappropriate behaviour or sexual misconduct. It's absolutely vital that people come forward, uh, if they come forward either to the police or the parliamentary authorities, as it did in this case. So on the Friday morning, a, a specific complaint was made. The chief whip and the prime minister then took the action necessary, which is withdrawing the whip. I understand Chris Pincher has been asked not to attend the parliamentary state while due process and a full investigation takes place.
0: Again, that claim about Johnson being unaware of any specific allegations has now been contradicted by Johnson's own spokesperson. But in any case, we might ask whether it's much of a defence that you only knew about general claims that someone was a sex pest instead of specific ones. This is a guy, remember, Boris Johnson was putting in charge of party discipline. Maybe it would be worth finding out what the basis of any general claims were instead of saying, oh, general claims, I can't possibly act on these.
1: Any instance where you've got... Allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault, which aren't being taken seriously within any given organization are of course serious because there are victims here. So it doesn't necessarily matter that it's occurring within, you know, a relatively small and closer group of people. Of course it matters because this is a, a problem of wrongdoing. It becomes, I think, an even more serious matter when the system of minimization and cover up is also that of a political party which has democratic representational functions. And this party also happens to be our governing party. All right, If you've got a governing party which is stuffed to the gills with sexual harassers and rapists, which the events of the last two years really seem to indicate the Conservative Party is, that isn't something which is good for the country as a whole or good for democracy. What's interesting about the Christopher Pincher allegations is that this really fulfills the role of open Westminster secret. So even before these precise allegations came out about having groped two men while at the Carlton Club, there were reports that an unnamed MP had to be assigned a minder by Conservative Party HQ to attend events with him to make sure that he didn't get too drunk and embarrass himself. Now, the nature of that embarrassment wasn't trying to lead a reluctant pub in a sing-along of Sweet Caroline, it turned out to be sexual assault and sexual harassment. You also have the reports that Christopher Pincher had to step down from a previous role in 2017 from having made an unwanted sexual pass at someone. So we're talking about a pattern of behaviour here, which rather than being taken seriously by the party, where it's a barrier to his ongoing tenure as an MP, or indeed his promotion through the ranks of the government benches, it becomes something of a joke, pincher by name, pincher by nature. And that's why the denials of Boris Johnson's knowledge of the incident are so weirdly phrased, because they're trying to dance around the central fact that, yes, Boris Johnson probably did make really horrendous minimizing jokes about a pattern of sexual misconduct from a member of his government, the deputy chief whip, no less. And I think this then speaks to the thing which does matter about this whole culture as a whole because on the one hand yes this is something of an insidery Westminster story it's the kind of thing which lots of lobby journalists like to lead on because it speaks their own privileged insider status within Westminster this is obviously a really bad thing that this MP has done but there is sort of a, a wider context of economic devastation ravaging the country and it's notable that lobby journalists seem to feel more comfortable talking about this kind of thing rather than, you know, the condition of most people in the country. But the fact that it was this open secret, that everyone knew that this guy had multiple allegations dogging him for years. The fact that there are many such open secrets within Westminster. So when Neil Coyle, the now independent MP for Bermondsey and Old Southwark, formerly a Labour MP, who had the whip removed after racially abusing a journalist by the name of Henry Dyer in the Commons Bar, lobby journalists fell over themselves to say, oh, everyone knows that this guy should have been out of Westminster a long time ago. And it's like, hang on, wait a minute, if everyone knows this, why is this only being said publicly now? So there is a curious pattern of a murder, a code of silence where insiders don't attack one another until either something becomes public or something is so egregious or there's a sort of shifting within the balance of power which makes it politically convenient to throw someone under the bus of public disdain. And that I think is something which is inherently dysfunctional because rather than being a conduit for information from a very closed space like parliament into the public domain, lobby journalists and insiders Operate as gatekeepers. So it's really worrying that you effectively have very bad behavior, whether that's sexual harassment, sexual assault, or in Neil Coyle's case, racism, effectively being protected or turned a blind eye to until it gets to the point where you can no longer do that. It's bad for our democracy. So that's why I think this story matters, even though it's kind of insidery.
0: Mainstream journalists who now are all saying, oh, this was an open secret. Everyone knew. The prime minister obviously knew because we all knew. I assume they defend. Them not having written about this before because they say UK has difficult libel laws. If we didn't have enough sources who wanted to go on the record, then we wouldn't have been able to publish that story. We can only say it now because we're no longer damaging his reputation by saying it because you know the damage has already been done. There is something to that argument. Also, at the same time, you know we're talking about the BBC, we're talking about ITV, we're talking about organisations with a lot of money to fight court cases. If it got to that, and it does seem that in cases like this, there are a lot of people who are willing to. To discuss this, that, you know, to write a story that sort of can get you through the courts and that you can defend, you don't need to have people's actual names and faces. You can say, an anonymous source told me this. So I I, I do feel like they should have managed to publish this kind of story. And then I suppose, you know, it's the person who comes out worse here, other than the people who are subject to these allegations, is Boris Johnson. Because again, you can say, you know, you might make a defense of an employer, oh, yeah, everyone knew he was this and that, but there are employment laws very, very difficult to. Kick someone out of an organization because you have to do all, you know, you have to sort of jump through legal hoops. Boris Johnson proactively decided to make this guy, subject to all of these allegations, deputy head of discipline in the Conservative Party, which is completely bonkers. Now, also, this is someone who's going to have quite a lot of power. So, from many of these allegations, what it sounds like is he uses his position of power and influence. As I say, these are all allegations, but from what it sounds like, this guy uses his position of power and influence in order to, you know, try and get men to do things that he wants them to do in a way that people find sexually inappropriate, right? So to know that and then give the guy more power, I mean, you are actively contributing to his ability to continue with that bad behavior. So, I mean, completely indispensable, which is what we've come to expect from Boris Johnson, quite frankly. Thank you to everyone who has contributed to our fundraiser so far. We're hoping to expand our base of supporters to 10,000 people. That's the magic number we've been talking about for the past month or so. We've hit 9, thousand supporters. So we started at six at the beginning of this campaign. We're on nine now, so we've increased by 50 percent and we are just one thousand away from our goal. So if you want to help support us by donating however much you can every month, then head to Navarramedia.com slash support. We really really Do appreciate it. It means we can continue to expand throughout the year with sort of regular income we can rely on. And you can find that link in the description box below. A lot of us are getting COVID-19 again. Of course, not many people are getting tested anymore. But according to the ONS survey, in the week ending the 24th of June, one in 30 people in England had coronavirus. In Scotland, it was one in 18. This is the third wave of COVID we've had since December when we were struck by the original Omicron wave. In March, a new subvariant of Omicron BA2 caused a second spike and this third Omicron wave is being driven by the new sublineages BA4 and BA5. Jenny Harries, who runs the UK Health Security Agency, was on the BBC this weekend to discuss the wave. Sophie Rowef started the question on all of our lips.
4: Everyone does seem to have COVID at the
3: moment. Does it matter that a lot of people are getting infected? Um, It certainly matters to those individuals. Obviously, many of them will feel uh, unwell, uh, and I send out my uh, commiserations to them. But of course, it matters on a national basis, because uh, whilst we have an armament now of vaccines uh, and antiviral treatments, uh, we do have, as you've just highlighted, a rise in hospital admissions and occupancy. And that means it's not just COVID that we're concerned about, but it's actually our ability to treat other illnesses as well.
0: So that was Jenny Harry's sticking to the line that the only real worry about COVID is how it impacts our health service. There was no mention of long COVID, for example. But let's stick to the issue of the NHS. There is a spike in people with COVID-19 in hospital. The latest available figures show that as of June the 27th, hospitals were treating over 10,000 COVID-positive patients, putting strain on an already overstretched workforce. This was the statistician David Spiegelhalter's assessment of those numbers. The um, hospitalizations are going up, definitely. Deaths have, you know, essentially evened out
2: and are not going down and will go up almost certainly um, in, the, in the future. Usual caveats are less than half of admissions to hospital of people, actually have COVID as the primary diagnosis, they're still way below previous Omicron waves. But they are going up, and this has been shown now, since it's June, it's not a seasonal virus in the way that we might be used to flu and other things. And so I mean, hospitalizations are still way below the previous waves of Omicron, but the NHS is under increasing pressure. Um, we've seen previously very strong pressure on ambulances, for example.
0: So less than half of hospitalizations are because of COVID. But as these waves happen every few months, the pressure they cause could be basically permanent. And this is what Christina Pagel from Independent Sage said when asked whether these apparently endless waves mean it's time to just learn to live with the virus.
4: It's not working out for us, is it? I mean, every few months, loads of people go off sick, there's loads of disruption, people can't, you know, teachers are off, people in the NHS are off, everyone's lives are disrupted. Even... I mean, I can't quite see how that, that's living with it and how just pretending that we just deal with it but what's the is, is it okay, because there are it. things we can do.
6: What, what, what
5: can we Sorry? do? That's, what can we do? What is the alternative then?
4: Okay, well, the obvious thing we can do is improve indoor air quality. Like, we've known that for two years and people keep saying, oh, it's a long-term solution, it's difficult. Yeah, it is a longer-term solution, but if we don't start, it's never going to finish. We know that if you're outside, you're much, much less likely to get COVID. If we can make indoor air much more like outdoor air, we massively reduce transmission. We know how to do it. It just takes effort and infrastructure and investment. But we just haven't been doing anything. So that's the kind of thing where I'm saying, okay, well, why don't we do that? And then we will still get waves. But they're not going to be kind of, you know, big waves. They'll be smaller waves and they're much easier to deal with.
0: Now, I just found that from Christina Pagel incredibly convincing. I think it's important to say, you know, the COVID debate used to be very divisive for good reason you know, there were two very bad options. So one was letting COVID rip and you have mass death on like a really horrific scale, or you have these terrible lockdowns, which have all of the awful consequences that come with that, both for civil liberties and then also for inequality and, you know, just for for quality of life. So you had two terrible options. Now, you have one option, which is kind of bad, which is just us all being a little bit less healthy than we were before COVID-19, because we're getting this new virus, which, you know, isn't the same as it was when we were unvaccinated, but it's still, you know, it's not ideal to be getting it all the time. Or we've got this alternative, which is basically probably better than before COVID, which is we install ventilation everywhere. Then what does that mean? It means that COVID will still be around. We will still get it every now and again, but we won't get it every three months. And also, by the way, if you install ventilation everywhere, that will prevent. Well, not prevent, but limit the damage done by other respiratory viruses. And the government seem to have not done it just because they cannot be bothered. I can't see any downside to a mass ventilation program. And I think the argument, you know, the government would put forward is this is too expensive. We can't do this kind of thing. But what about the sewage system? You know, like you think about previous pandemics. So after like cholera outbreaks, you had what was presumably a much larger proportion of GDP than would be necessary for a ventilation rollout to build a sewage system because it wasn't sustainable for people to keep getting cholera and dying all the time, right? So so we did a mass investment in something which didn't just stop cholera, by the way. It also made us much healthier in numerous other ways. And we should be doing exactly the same thing now, which is to say, if we did a mass ventilation program, that would stop us getting COVID-19. It would also generally make us a healthier population. But for some reason, we're not doing it. It's very, very bizarre. And I do think we should move away from this very divisive sort of zero COVID versus let it rip. I think now zero COVID, obviously not possible at all. I don't think Christina Pagel is arguing for it. What we need to do is manage COVID and we can do that in a way that makes, that puts no limit whatsoever on our lifestyles and also makes us healthier in terms of other diseases as well. Ash, how are you approaching this third wave of Omicron this year? Obviously it's not seasonal because it happens every three months.
1: I really agree with you on the point about ventilation, which is actually investing in healthcare infrastructure, whether that's something like sewers or something like better indoor ventilation, doesn't just have a benefit for the immediate pandemic or epidemic, whether it's cholera or typhus or COVID, is something which overall has a net beneficial effect. And yes, the government might wring its hands and crow a little bit about the expenditure of initially doing it, but I don't think anyone would argue that our country is economically worse off now that we've got an underground sewage system, right? In the long term, it's something which pays dividends both economically and in terms of the healthcare outcomes of the entire country. So totally agree with you there. There is one more thing that I would perhaps add to this. I think something that a lot of people are feeling is a sense of uncertainty about what it is you're supposed to do socially when it comes to taking precautions or how often you should be testing, so on and so forth. And if that's something which someone like me is finding difficult to navigate and I don't have any clinical vulnerabilities, people who were instructed to shield during the earlier waves are left completely on their own. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because one, obviously the guidance is that there is no guidance. And then the second thing is that now that you've got to pay for lateral flow tests and you can't just wander in and get a PCR when you have symptoms anymore, you have a real roll of the dice approach to mass socializing. So, I've been out to events which will have lots of people there, and I've generally been trying to take a lateral flow test before I do. The problem with that is that I'm now forking out for a lateral flow test every time I want to go out and socialize with lots of people. And if I'm finding that a bit like oh, this is kind of long, there are lots of people who simply can't afford to do that. There are lots of people who are going to be you know, socializing with people who are clinically vulnerable, maybe because they're elderly or maybe because they've got, you know, conditions which aren't, you know, so obvious. And that sort of social network of mutual obligation and reciprocity that we had during the pandemic has kind of broken down a bit. I just think a really easy way in which you can deal with it is give us free tests. People want to use them. It helps us do the things that we want to do in a way which is just that bit more conscientious and safe.
0: But it would cost too much money, Ash. We can't afford ventilation. We can't afford free tests. So we're all just going to have to be a little bit iller for eternity so that you know, the government can afford to keep giving bungs to their mates. That kind of seems to be where we're at with this. You'll be very excited to know there's a new moral panic in town. As usual, it's about Britain's younger generations, but this time it's not about chomping on avocado toast or disrespecting our colonial elders, but rather our failure to have enough kids. It's a talking point which has been doing the rounds for a while, but it's been given rocket boosters since the publication of the latest census data. That shows the number of children under the age of five has dropped by 7.6% in the last 10 years. This is a chart released by the ONS who conduct the census. It shows the number of people in each age bracket in the UK. We've had an ageing population for a while, hence why we have more people in their 50s than in their teens. But it gets most dramatic when you get to the youngest group. The UK had 300,000 fewer under fours in 2021 than it did in 2011. So what's happened in the last five years to stop people having babies? Should we care? And if so, what should we do about it? Now, I actually think these are all interesting questions, which we'll discuss properly in a moment. First, though, let's look at the debate in the UK's paper of record, because the Sunday Times asked this weekend, should we tax the childless? The piece was by Oxford University demographer Paul Morland, who offered these suggestions for raising the birth rate. The first is create a pro-natal culture, including a national day to celebrate parenthood and a telegram from the Queen whenever a family has a third child. Public figures can lead the way with words and actions. The Prime Minister, with his seven known offspring, has a track record in this regard. He also suggests sacrifice a portion of the Greenbelt around London, other cities, to free up additional space for more cheaper family homes. Some of the value unlocked by this can be passed on to local or national government. Retarget child benefit to incentivize families to have children. Tax credits are more effective than a flat rate per child. If this is regressive, redistributing money to the better off, counteract it elsewhere in the system. This is where the taxing the childless comes in. Introduce a negative child benefit tax for those who do not have offspring. This may seem unfair on those who can't or won't have children, but it recognizes that we all rely on there being a next generation and that everyone should contribute to the cost of creating that generation. Use the funds to fix the UK's broken, expensive early years care system. Why not just tax the rich or property owners to do that? Finally, his suggestion is to educate people that getting pregnant becomes more difficult with age. As Dorothy Byrne, the master of the all-female Murray Edwards College, Cambridge, suggested last year, too much outrage. Some see subsidized IVF provision as a technological solution, as China is attempting, but as with natural conception, its success becomes significantly less likely as the age of a woman advances. Now, Ash, as a gay man, I'm thankfully subject to little pressure to create the next generation. It's not on me if there aren't enough babies in the world. How do you feel about this whole debate?
1: Oh, I feel positively fertile with excitement, Michael. Um, <laughs> That's not good enough, Ash. We need you
0: to be fertile with something else. There are not enough under fives in this country.
1: (laughs) Fertile with embryos and not merely excitement. Mm. I mean, (laughs) look, joking aside, this is uh, an article which is both sinister and unhinged, which is the sort of Sunday Times perfect intersection. And I think that there's a lot you can say about why people aren't having children. One, everything is really expensive. For decades, you have had a total divergence of wages and housing costs, which is a huge barrier to whether or not you can introduce children into your household. If you literally don't have space to fit them because you can't afford to live somewhere bigger, then you're going to have a problem. Stagnant and real-time falling wages, of course, that's another barrier. The fact that you don't have particularly generous paternity leave that you still experience workplace discrimination if you're a woman and you're taking maternity leave. The fact that childcare is so goddamn expensive in this country. Again, these are all things which don't exactly make it an economically inviting environment in which to have children. And then I think you've got something which is a lot bigger. And I think that this is the very regressive undertone that a lot of these pro-natalist arguments can take is that you have... Really high birth rates in circumstances where women don't have options. So where women don't have access to contraceptives to where they're excluded from the workforce, where they're not able to access reproductive healthcare like abortions. You have really high birth rates because women don't have any other option. And in this country, at least in England, Wales and Scotland, you've seen a really, really big shift in access to work abortion and contraceptives and divorce. That's another huge one. So womanhood is no longer a state of de facto reproductive captivity. And that has changed. But society's social structures for supporting people into parenthood haven't really changed enough. So one of the things you're kind of asking women to do is make this decision When do you want to immolate your own life, your ability to socialize, your career, your disposable income? And women, I think quite instantly, are going, eh, not very soon. Thank you very much. And so I think until you really have a look at how we structure society and in terms of supporting people into parenthood in a way which isn't about closing down on choice, but facilitating people's ability to make the choices that they want to make in terms of having a family, you're going to have this problem of a declining birth rate. And the right, the right talk about this in terms of either really stupid stuff like, you know, a telegram from the Queen. It's interesting that they never put two and two together, which is, hmm, if you introduce, you know, effectively a two-child policy when it comes to being able to receive universal credit, is that going to encourage or discourage people to give birth? But I think that these kind of pronatalist arguments, you've got this very silly surface level discussion about, you know, taxing the childless or telegrams for the queen. But I think there can be a very sinister edge, which is about reducing the choices which are available to women. And I know that we're going to talk about the racialized aspect of it, but I think there's also a class aspect as well. It's about saying, okay, we don't want these horrible, degenerate, poor people to have kids. What we want is middle-class women who for too long have, you know, been dominating the academy and making strides in the workplace, we want to get them back in the kitchen or in the nursery.
0: I mean, as you said, so many angles to, to cover here. And we will talk in a moment. Or so. I, I mean, I do think there is an important argument about the right to family life, which I don't think, you know, we take seriously. I do think it is sad that people feel they can't afford to have kids. And loads of people think that because, you know, it, it used to take three years to save to buy a house. Now it takes, I think, 18 years to save to buy a house. And obviously, we all know what the private rental market is. I as a single man find it difficult enough to rent a place and I share with two other people. If I was trying to start a family, I would, pfft, I don't know what the hell I would do. So I, I do think there is an argument about right to family life, but there should be no pressure on anyone to have babies because there are plenty of people that want to work in this country. Anyway, let's move on to that racial undertone that is sort of often present in these discussions. In the aforementioned Sunday Times piece, Morland writes this, we should adopt a grow our own policy aiming to provide most of the population growth from births within our racially and ethnically diverse country rather than immigration. Nearly 30% of births in the UK are now to mothers born overseas, like mine, born in Germany. There will always be a place for some immigration, but we should not be as reliant on it as we have been over the past 20 or 30 years. Now, speaking about families like livestock will always be a bit creepy to me, a grow your own policy. I think that should be about potatoes, not babies. But it's also worth asking why relying on immigration should be such a problem. I know he sort of says, oh, we've got a racially diverse population. This isn't about race, but I'm not sure. And especially if there are young people desperate to come here and work, we might ask, why are we locking out potential immigrants who really want to come here and then pressuring young women already here to have more kids when they don't necessarily want to have them? Now, it's not obvious to me in any sense. But to understand Morland's view, we can look at another article he's written. So this first passage is from an article Morland wrote also for the Sunday Times last year. But immigration is no free lunch. Depending on its source, it changes the ethnic mix of a country. The number of people identifying as white in the US have fallen from almost 90% of the population in 1960 to barely 60% today. US white people are older, and even without further immigration will see a decline in their population share. So before he signposted, oh, I I want to grow the racially, ethnically diverse British population, now he's citing as what looks like a problem, the fact that there are less white people in the United States. And that suggests to me that we can see that Moreland's problem with immigration is racial. Immigration is a problem because countries like the United States will become less white. And it's an issue he touched on, again, in a 2020 article for the Institutes of Arts and Ideas. Cities like London and Brussels contain an ethnic mix which some welcome and some dislike, but none can deny is utterly unlike the situation a generation ago. But underneath the surface, majorities in the developed world are not relaxed about this. George Floyd's death has given rise to mass demonstrations across Europe as well as North America, and what we see on display is an outpouring of predominantly white remorse on the part of tens of thousands. What we do not see is what is going on among hundreds of thousands or millions who don't turn out for the demos. The anti-Brexit and anti-Trump demonstrations have been vast, and yet we have Brexit and Trump. And nothing correlates as closely to a Brit wanting to leave the EU or an American wanting to make America great again than a concern about immigration and ethnic change. Ash, this is pretty... Bizarre passage to my mind, sort of linking the George Floyd protests and then using that as an example or the silent opposition to the George Floyd protests as an example as to why America is too ethnically diverse. Can you make this all make sense to me? It's a respected demographer at Oxford University, got a piece in the Times. What's going on here?
1: Yeah, so if you put your racial paranoiac translator on, what you can make sense of here is that there's a connection between increasing racial diversity and the United States from the moment that it was founded was a racially diverse country. It's just that what you had was a white ruling class, an Irish indentured class, a black enslaved class, and, you know, an indigenous class who were being exterminated and dispossessed and expelled geographically, right? So you've had racial diversity, but what you haven't had is any kind of sense of equal status as citizens. Now, I'm not claiming for one moment that the ethnic diversity that you're seeing now means that you've got a kind of post-racial fantasy land far from it, but you at least have a level of equality before the law, which is very different from, you know, what you had in the slavery period or, you know, indeed in the Jim Crow period. You have pretty significant value shift amongst young white people where Of course, there's lots of unconscious bias and unchallenged assumptions, but when you've got huge seismic movements like Black Lives Matter in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin, the killing of Mike Brown, the killing of George Floyd, is that it really then changes how white people and black people conceive of themselves as being part of the body politic, which is a pretty fundamental shift in terms of how things work in America. So that is the kind of imaginative connection which is being drawn here. It's not necessarily that there's something to a kind of silent majoritarian grievance. What he's talking about is an aspect of, you know, white majorities reacting to a a profound loss of status, a curtailment of the ability to dominate other people on the basis of race and saying, okay, this is the result of. Demographic changes rather than demographic changes and political changes and cultural changes and social changes. And all of those things must be bad. When it comes to thinking about this country, I always go back to, in my head, a Lionel Shriver article, which was written by The Spectator, which was a lot less mealy mouthed than I think uh, some of these pieces, because she just comes out and says it. She starts by talking about immigration and then she's talking about race. And she says that, you know, white people are giving up their biological inheritance without a single shot being fired. You know, very violent imagery talking about a demographic war. And reading these passages, which were intensely paranoid and, you know, I think had this real violent drumbeat going through it, it felt very strange to me that what she was talking about is the process of, yeah, people coming here, falling in love and raising families and having children, which I think of as kind of beautiful. The other unspoken bit or underspoken aspect is, you know, if you've got a foreign national as a parent, child is born here to at least one British national parent, that is a British child. So saying, okay, but, you know, I want racial diversity and I don't want, you know, a kind of, you know, immigration-based demographic shift. The thing that he's not saying is that actually those children are in a strictly legal sense, also British. So it's like the Scooby-Doo unmasking, Michael. It was just racism all along.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny, but you did. You, you put <laughs> no, it in a, in a very entertaining way as you, you normally do. Just that, just that final point, not, not all of it. Let's end this segment by looking at a headline. You talked about this already, Ash, the extent to which this new moral panic about low birth rates is a complete about-turn from a moral panic we had just seven years ago. So this headline is from 2015. Child tax credit reforms will teach parents that children cost money, says Ian Duncan-Smith. And then you've got the subheading, Work and Pension Secretary says changes will ensure parents know not to assume taxpayers will pick up cost of extra children. This was a really grim policy that, that to only grant children, um, or to only grant families child tax credit for the first two children in any family. Now, combined with the benefit cap, it plunged millions of children into poverty. And for what... Also, we could have a panic about not having enough babies in, well, seven years' time. So it's just constant judgment from elites. And I think what this shows, actually, is that this was never about the number of babies. So what IDS was talking about here, this was essentially about the number of poor people, basically a version of eugenics. If you're on benefits, you shouldn't have more than two kids. You should only have more than two kids if you're middle class enough not to need benefits. I can't see how you can interpret that in any other way. And now they've realized, or now they've got this weird paranoia about, that, oh, actually, if you tell people in this country not to have babies, then you're going to have a declining birth rate, and then maybe we'll have more immigration so that the whole social care system doesn't collapse. It's just these two bigotries combining and then dressing themselves up in this flowery language, which means there's this, this obsession with like the bodily autonomy of ordinary people and how many babies they have and the size of their families from elites in this country. It's It's incredibly, incredibly unnerving. And... It's disgusting. I hate it. Let's move on. The campaign group Just Stop Oil have won widespread attention after disrupting Sunday's Formula One Grand Prix. A small group of protesters from the group stormed the racetrack before being removed by police. And the following day, a representative from the group was grilled by former Shadow Chancellor Ed Balls. Now, to my mind, Balls made a bit of a fool of himself. Let's take a look.
7: When you think of the great protest movements and the civil disobedience of the last hundred years, like the suffragettes or the campaign Gandhi for Indian independence or the civil rights movement or uh, the pride campaign for for equality um, Mm. for uh, people of all sexualities in our country. I mean, what do you learn from their campaigns?
3: Well, as you, as you will well know, they all took disruptive action. Like, we wouldn't be in the place that we are in society if those groups hadn't taken the action that they took.
7: What your audience need to understand... But the other thing was that they actually were quite clever at getting public opinion on their side... And I wonder how that's going. That's
3: patently not true, Ed, is it? Like These groups were some of the most unpopular groups of their time. What your audience need to understand is that we're being systematically lied to. The government has no intention of dealing with this crisis. They are under the behest of big business and corporate interests. And corporate media like yourselves uh, are are also uh, complicit with this.
7: Your colleague last week, um, Emily Brocklebank, when she she glued herself to a Van Gogh painting and um, you've also kind of disrupted Premier League games, she said... We can't live in a bubble of normality when society is collapsing around us. Mm -hmm. Isn't the point of your campaign that you aren't targeting all companies or the government? What you're targeting is anybody who is living in this bubble of normality. Anybody living a normal life is your target. And actually, the problem is, who are the kind of people... The
3: problem is... is Let let me finish my point. I'll ask you a question. I'll ask you a question and you answer. If we do not
7: make our our practice visible... It doesn't get very You are the people in society who target people going about their normal lives to affect their campaign. That isn't Gandhi. That isn't the civil rights movement. That's what terrorism is. You target people's normal lives as a way of changing things. We are not very non violent. How dare you
3: conflate us with terrorism? Mm. It
0: doesn't feel very non violent to me. Maybe facts don't care about your feelings, Ed Balls. And it was also, I mean, really, really bizarre to ask people who interrupted a race why they don't just learn from the suffragettes. Like, didn't Ed Balls learn about Emily Davidson at school? I swear that was like on my GCSEs. Her throwing herself in front of the king's horse at Epsom is literally the most famous thing the suffragettes did. That's like history 101 when it comes to how social movements achieve their ends um, in this country. Um, Ash, what did you make of that exchange?
1: That Ed Balls is a prick. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. He's either idiotic, malevolent, or both. As you said, the suffragettes undertook incredibly disruptive action. They were subject to huge amounts of state violence and repression, including imprisonment and force feeding. Emily Davidson threw herself in front of the king's horse. They were subject to a media smear campaign. The same with Gandhi, subject to huge smear campaigns in the British press. And if you want to talk about the civil rights movement, they were not particularly good at getting the public, as in a white majority public, on their side. You had a majority of people who thought that the freedom riders hurt the cause of desegregation. 57% of people thought that diner sit-ins hurt the cause of desegregation. By the time of his death, I think something like two-thirds to three-quarters of Americans had a negative opinion of Martin Luther King. Now, we look back on that time as something of a social miracle. They did the unimaginable, the undreamable, the unthinkable, and brought an end to segregation in the South. The same with the anti-apartheid movement, hugely unpopular amongst white South Africans, indeed quite unpopular amongst some white British people as well, (coughs) Margaret Thatcher. Now, the point is, is that whenever you have a extra parliamentary movement is that you do always have more militant wings, which take an awful lot of the fire in terms of state blowback, imprisonment, and media smear campaigns. And you have a wider civil society mobilization as well. You need both things to make the thing work. Now, I wouldn't expect a good morning Britain host, even if it is Ed Ball's former Labour MP, to necessarily know all of that, but to outright lie about those histories in order to present this poor just stop oil protester who I thought did a really good job in terms of handling a very hostile media environment you know, what a Good Morning Britain presenter's role is, is to essentially treat this protester as a Christian and him and his co-presenters in the audience are the lions. It's about a spectacle of tearing someone to shreds for the temerity of having beliefs. And I think that it is shameful that Ed Balls was ever part of this so-called progressive party like Labour, and that as recently as the Wakefield by-election, he was tipped to make a return to politics. Somebody who was unable, and is that intellectually either ignorant or dishonest, to approach a climate change movement in the way that he is, has absolutely no place in politics at all. It's endangering the lives of everybody on this planet. So TL, DR, Ed Balls is a prick.
0: Okay, that's a good conclusion. I like that, TLDR. I agree. And I think with all of these protests, I mean, kind of my view is, if what people are saying to you is we agree with your cause, we just don't agree with the way you're trying to achieve it, you are winning, right? I think quite rightly, the people who are part of these Just Stop Oil or Insulate Britain protests, it doesn't matter whether people like you or not. You know, as you've just explained very articulately there, Ash, most of these movements that change stuff, people didn't like the people doing it. But if they're talking about the issue, if they've said... I agree with what, you, what you're trying to achieve. I just don't like the way you're doing it. You've won already. And I think the fact that that's essentially what Ed Balls was saying there, even though he's incredibly ill-informed in everything else, he said that that shows that that just-stop oil protest was worth it. So, you know, kudos. Final story. On this show, we often despair about the calibre of people running for elected office in Britain. But a clip this week reminded us there are still places where it's even worse. These are highlights of a debate in America between the Republican candidates for governor of Arizona.
6: They closed my business down. But you know what? I didn't listen. I kept it open. You didn't have to listen, people. You didn't have to listen. I'd actually like to ask everybody
1: on the stage if they would agree we had a corrupt stolen election. Raise your hand.
6: Never happened. Hold on. Assault. Let her finish, please, Scott. Okay. God, they talk over me and I'm Italian. That shouldn't happen. <laughs> you know I'm what I'm Irish. Okay. You know what? Why not get high-tech people that are gonna be on the machines that are Republicans? A Democrat, Republican, get supervisors, that, equal amount. That happens. That we, we have parties we, looking over. Th- that's election right. Results. They're, they're doing it now. No, no, they, they they're actually telling they hundreds, two hundred thousand minimum ballots were
1: trafficked by mules. No, well, an honest got, election. May I finish. Mamma Mom, mia! I feel like state. I'm on an SNL skit here. Are you we going to take it, control of the debate We time, are or taking, or do you want me to No, do no,
6: it? no, no, Carrie. I don't want to try to try. I'm happy to do it. I know you would be okay. happy to do it. Listen, I haven't been on a stage with this many women since I've been to a baby shower. It's okay. been a while. <laughs> I, I don't know how that's going to go over, Scott, but we'll let that <laughs> hang. Um, let's talk about... Well, what? Do you think Republican voters want a candidate who doesn't even believe in the vote? I don't believe this primary has been fair. I can tell you that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have launched the lawsuit. Here. Our
1: campaign is a movement. We're gonna show up and vote in droves. They're gonna to have to cheat even harder in order to try to win this. Your so campaign's
6: think- a psyop. Uh, Paula, Paul, please. First let of all, put Paul, everything. Paul, Paul, I feel like what? this is a spoof, please. honestly. Go ahead, finish <laughs> what you were saying, please. <laughs> oh, is God. this a spoof, Ted? No, it's not. Finish. Are what you saying. sure? Yes, Fines- I am. Yes. Wow, okay. I'm pro-life. From conception to death. And I believe- No exceptions for rape or incest? Well, that's a gray area. I I don't know. That's a personal decision for a person. Well, why can't we treat human life in the same way that we would treat alien life that we discovered on an alien planet?
1: There's a reason we don't always invite Scott because he's polling at 0%. No, 1%. And this is what happens when But the polls
6: lie. Scott, please. And to no, guys. you can't that's respond one one to a closing one statement. One. The only kind of drag I've ever dressed in is a business suit or construction work clothes. I've never aspired to be Elvis Presley. That's
4: a shame. All right, that's it. That's Have it. That's it.
0: <laughs> Ash, it's one part hilarious, one part terrifying. Which side are you falling on?
1: These people are armed to the teeth.
0: Oh God, that's true. You know. <laughs>
1: This is the world's superpower, Michael, and they've got nukes and AR-15s. Like, does that not horrify you in some way? And I know you're looking for maybe some kind of serious response. And I guess the the serious response is this is what happens when you have a politics which is based on a radicalized right. Wing, which aided and abetted by huge media forces like the Rupert Murdoch Empire, is able to hermetically seal a significant portion of the electorate in a nice crank bubble and then elevate those people to the position of, you know, would be candidate. It's frightening. And I think what's also frightening is the american education system if you're very rich you can get a you know very varied and interesting education but in a lot of places it is chronically underfunded, a big old role of the dice, and you also have undue influence from all sorts of nefarious forces, church groups, so on and so forth. So you end up with huge swathes of the population whose ability to critically interrogate the information that they're receiving is severely, severely curtailed. And yes, you end up with this totally bananas dog and pony show and there's something entertaining about it, a bit like if you watched a clown riding a unicycle and it was on fire. But imagine that clown is on a unicycle and it's heading towards you with an AR-15 because that's what I see. It's kind of funny and also terrifying.
0: Or a nuclear button, right? You know, this is a, this is a governor race for a, this is a swing state, actually. So Arizona is, is one of the states that could decide the next presidential election. I think at the moment the the governor is Republican. I think that the Democrats are the favorites to take it, but there's a good chance that one of the people you just saw on that stage could become its governor. Some reassurance for you. So the guy who's never aspired to be Elvis is actually on 1%, so he's unlikely to be the Republican candidate. Um, The lady, though, who talked about votes being carried by mules and who thinks the election was stolen from Trump, she is the favorite. So she is the favorite to be the Republican candidate and there is a decent chance she could end up running that state. So equal parts, hilarious, especially, I mean, I did actually, I thought the host was quite, (laughs) we're just going to let that hang there. I'm not sure how that's going to go down. I thought that was very entertaining. At the same time, you know, we have less than a decade to put the world on a trajectory so that we don't all burn in sort of catastrophic climate change. And you have this clown show party who could control every branch of government in two years' time. Like, that is terrifying. That is terrifying. And America needs to sort its shit out, right? Because it matters to the rest of us. It matters to the rest of us because they are a superpower. They're a superpower with nukes. They are still, you know, as much as everyone talks about China when it comes to climate change, the USA have much, much higher emissions per capita. And you could have these people in charge. Like, it's terrifying. The most terrifying phenomenon i think going on in the world right now is what's happening in the republican party and if they could become the next leaders of the world's superpower it's it's terrifying on that note thank you ash it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening
1: well thank you for having me but also fuck you for introducing that terrifying thought into my mind that one of those people could potentially, if their governor run goes well, maybe, maybe even they launch a presidential bid. That is the kind of person who is at the heart of power in the world's most heavily armed superpower.
0: Thanks for that. It's not a vibe. It's not a vibe. Thank you, everyone, for watching our show this evening. Make sure to come back again on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to
4: slash support.